Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 272, Fractured Souls, the Spirits of the Peoria State Hospital, with Sylvia Schultz, joining us from Illinois, uh, the land, the flat land, uh, is Sylvia. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Mike. How are you? Um, I'm freezing to death. <laughs> yes. It is not much warmer down south here in Illinois. No. <laughs> that flat we have a couple of hills every once in a while (laughs) that's true but being from wisconsin it is it's my duty uh to to at least get a um and you know and i i married somebody from morris illinois so uh i did a little state trader um there but um no it's it's my duty as a wisconsin person to get a little dig in in every uh discussion when it comes in Uh, it's nothing personal trust me um all right so you know Starting out, the Peoria State Hospital, what got you interested in this place uh, originally? Why why did you get so into it that now this is your second book, Fractured Souls, talking about it? Oh, man. Well, I've, I've always loved true ghost stories. And when I grew up and started uh, making my own collections of stories uh, to share with people. I was working on a book called Ghosts of the Illinois River. And as I was collecting stories, people kept telling me, oh, did you know that there's there's a place called the Peoria State Hospital? Did you know that it's an abandoned mental asylum? Did you know that it's extremely haunted? And I said, I had no idea at all. I did not grow up in this area, so I was unaware of this historical and haunted place that was so close to me. So I started investigating it, and what I discovered was that the Peoria State Hospital is not only a treasure trove of ghost stories and haunting experiences, but it's also a real a jewel in the care in the field of mental health care, which is something that's personally very important to me. Now, I want to get to that. I want to get to that in one second about the jewel about mental health care. Uh, first, I want to say, where did you grow up and how did you get into ghost stories originally? Oh, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Okay. So I grew up in stories of Resurrection Mary and the screaming ghost, of the screaming mummy at the Field Museum and the U505. And oh, yeah. I grew up all these stories so and it was my father who who told me all these stories because he grew up in the chicago area too and he just passed that love of ghost lore on to me i remember sitting at the dining room table and having him tell me stories of of archer avenue and the ley lines and all these things that combined to make a place haunted he was very interested in that and he passed that along to me i see we used to uh we used to listen to richard crow tell his ghost stories on wgn uh when i was was really little and so that i mean that was one of my my first memories of that so i know exactly what you're talking about and that's that's exciting so how did you make it all the way out to peoria then (laughs) well it was a combination of going away to college and grad school and meeting someone who lived down here and marrying him. So I, I kind of had to stay once I got married, you know. It's, 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 it's right. It's it's the same story of a romance that was meant to be. But now you came to a place, though, that it seems, you know, that you have a unique relationship uh, with the Peoria State Hospital. And, you know, here, here's one of the things that um, when people talk about haunted hospitals, they never talk about haunted hospitals like it's a nice place. They always talk about it like this is where, pe-, you know, and they'll make up stories, um, you know, even if there hasn't been a history, uh, you know, like that. Um, I know speaking of Chicago history, there's a, a, a certain place in Lake Geneva, the guy that they named Maxwell Street days after, uh, where he moved his family. And so he moves up. And when they were talking about, uh, he's a former doctor, Dr. Robert Maxwell. And instead of saying like, well, this doctor helped people and stuff, um, 
you know, his, his, his mansion is haunted. And they'll be like, we think it's because of the experimental surgeries he did on people. And I'm like, hold on a second. Do you have any proof that this person did any kind of experimental surgeries? It seems like whenever we go into hospitals and ghosts, it's always some kind of mad doctor proposition. Is the Pieria State Hospital like that? I am very happy to say that it is nothing like that. Uh, People do make up their own stories, but that's because they haven't yet learned the actual history of the place. Um, I mean, you say haunted mental asylum and your mind, just like you said, it goes all American horror story on you. And you assume that you know the stories that went on there. Right. But at the Peoria State Hospital, this was a place where... There were no bars on the windows. There were no locked doors except for the violent wards for the men and for the women. The patients were allowed to go outside. They were allowed to leave if they wanted to. They did not have anything like, oh, signing themselves out. If they wanted to wander away from the hospital grounds, they actually could. And sometimes they were picked up in Peoria and brought back by the police. I mean, but their life sounds better than mine. <laughs> but three meals a day of locally grown food, yeah, everything that was produced, yeah, everything was everything was produced on the hilltop. The only thing that was not produced or manufactured by the staff and the patients was shoes. They made everything else. They had breakfast and lunch in their cottages with their fellow patients. And dinner they had at the dining halls with everyone else so they could socialize. And if you look at photographs, of the patients in the dining halls, you'll notice something that's very subtle, but once you realize it, you can't unsee it. The fact is that all these patients are wearing street clothes. They're not wearing hospital johnnies. They're not wearing scrubs. They're wearing their own clothes. Dr. Zeller felt that to take away a man's clothes was to take away his dignity, so he refused to do that. And I want to talk a little bit about Dr. Zeller because he, I mean, you always think of, I mean, I, for some reason I'm thinking about John Hamm in the movie, um, oh, what was, I mean, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of the movie now, but it was one of, uh, it's a Zack Snyder film and uh, it, like, this girl's in a mental asylum and she's about to get a lobotomy from John Hamm, the guy from Mad Men. And, um, oh, it's killing me right now. But, you know, that's all you can think (laughs) of is, is, you know, or you think of, um, you know, like the psychiatric hospital that Dorothy is in and Return to Oz. And all those little things um, just add up to, you know, we have this vision, mostly from movies, because asylums um, seem to be at least scary places in our imagination, instead of being something positive. Absolutely. Yeah. Patients being being hosed down and beaten with rubber hoses and and all these horrible, horrible things. But right. This, Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. Exactly. Right. From what flew the cuckoo's nest. Now, Dr. Zeller is nothing like Nurse Ratchet. And so right. what was unique about his, uh, you know, his perspective, especially coming? He's the late 19th century. Right. It's Dr. Zeller. And his wife is just as much of a partner. Oh, yes. And, and Equal so, partner. So what's what's a little bit unique about his uh, approach to helping people out with these kind of problems? Well, Dr. Zeller was a very interesting man. He was not trained as a psychiatrist. He was trained as a surgeon, and his father was before him. They both had practices in Peoria. And Dr. Zeller was very proud of the fact that he had no psychiatric training. He said, well, just treat them with kindness and see what happens. And what happened was that the Peoria State Hospital became the premier institute for the care of the mentally ill in the world. Now, Dr. Zeller lost his mother at a very young age. He was only five years old when his mother passed away, but he never forgot her influence. She was a very kind, caring, compassionate woman, and he internalized that And he put it into practice when he became superintendent of the Peoria State Hospital. He felt very strongly that women were to be respected and listened to. He would take long walks with his patients, with both the men and the women, and he would encourage people to talk to him. He would encourage reporters to come onto the hilltop and ask him anything, ask his staff anything. He had a completely open door policy. But he also talked to the patients. 
And can you imagine being in a mental asylum in 1905? Women weren't even allowed to vote. And imagine going for a walk in the Illinois countryside and having the superintendent of the hospital where you're staying ask you your opinion on the care that you're getting. I wouldn't trust it. I immediately think like he's like setting me up for something, like he's going to come in, strap me to a chair and take out my lobes. (laughs) Well, fortunately, Dr. Zeller was not like that. (laughs) So number one, we're coming on to a different kind of situation. When people talk about Waverly or the other famous asylums, I mean, basically, right, Terrence Allegheny, basically, you know, they make it sound like it's a legal torture chamber, you know, kind of thing. And I like that we're coming to the Peoria State Hospital from a different perspective, because immediately that changes the nature of any ghost stories that might come out of it. So I wanted to go to, first of all, there's several different buildings on the grounds of the State Hospital, and you do a good job in your book and kind of describing the different ones. And I kind of wanted to start with, because we're going to talk about ghost stories in in the different buildings, you know, what were the grounds of the State Hospital and what were the different buildings in there so we can get a sense of geography before we talk about uh, the different hauntings? All right, Mike, I would be delighted to do this. The hilltop on which the asylum sits was very compact. It was built before there were a lot of cars. They were just, you either took a horse or took a horse and carriage or you walked. So this, the hilltop was very walkable. Um, It was very compact. And all of these buildings would, they they would be built and then repurposed for some else. And then they would be torn down and another building would be built. So this hilltop was in a constant state of flux and change the 71 years that the asylum was open. Uh, And Mike, going back to what you said before, you're absolutely right. The ghost stories that come out of Peoria State Hospital are absolutely different to the stories that come out of Trans-Allegheny or Waverly or Pennhurst or any other of these asylums because the treatment that the patients received in life was so much different to the other asylums. Um, These are stories of most of the patients, most of the, the phantoms at the Peoria State Hospital that we encounter in our ghost hunting today are intelligent spirits. They want to communicate with you. They want to tell you how good they had it. Um, they they were very aware, most of them, of the the wonderful situation they had landed themselves in. So these spirits are, for the most part, very friendly. They are very intelligent. They will carry on conversations with you. And they're very aware of their status as spirits and as kind of spokespeople for the asylum. They don't go out of their way to scare people because that's not what they're that's not why they're there. They're not seeking vengeance on a humanity that left them behind. Exactly, yeah. Um there are some spirits there that do like to scare people because they were very aggressive in life. And we can talk about those spirits as well. But for the most part, these are spirits that just want to communicate with you, which I think is absolutely wonderful. Well, and that's why people go on investigations because they they want to get that communication. They don't just want to be grabbed, scared, scratched, things like that. Um, <laughs> you know, you go there because you want to have some kind of, um, well, acknowledgement from the other side. And so the thing is, how big was the State Peoria Hospital? Because you talk about there's a building for, I mean, there's a graveyard there um, that has hundreds of bodies, right? There, there's a, there was a building yes. for tuberculosis. There was a building for the mental patients. Um, it seems like there were, it was a, it's a big grounds where there were several different buildings. Absolutely. There were 63 buildings on the hilltop at the asylum site. Yeah. 12 of those buildings are still standing, including the very first one that was built, which was the firehouse. So that's cool that we have the very first building ever built. Uh, A lot of the buildings have been lost or um, a lot of them have also been repurposed into other things. One of the cottages is now a dentist's office. Um, There were actually three cemeteries on the hilltop and they're they're kind of divided so some people say three some people say five 
because of the way the cemeteries are divided. There are 4,132 graves out there. And that represents only about a third of the people who passed away at the asylum over 71 years. Most of the people were sent back to their family plots. Well, sure. I mean, that seems to make, I mean, that seems to make sense because especially if you die from tuberculosis or something like that, like the chances are your family sent you there because they couldn't take care of you at home or you were no longer able to, you know, live at home. And then um, they're not just going to leave you there once you're dead. Right. Uh, Right. You know, I think that we talk about, you know, there's these different places because first of all, um, if there's a hospital wing, if there is a a mental wing, and first the name of it, right? Wasn't it originally like the Illinois Asylum? No, Illinois Asylum for the Incurable Insane, <laughs> which, which Dr. Zeller thought was an appalling name, and he got it changed as quickly as he could. Right. He said, don't tell my patients they're incurable. That's what I'm here to do. But it's that kind of idea, though, that there's these, these different buildings, and a lot of people might only be familiar with the Peoria State Hospital um, after they saw um, the, you know, the TV investigation of it when the ghost hunters visited there and also the Tennessee Wraith Chasers. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. And so if they're only familiar with the with the Peoria State Hospital um, from television, mm-hmm. uh, as someone that's been there, that's worked there, um, that has, you know, volunteered there and spent a good deal of time there, what would you say that the TV people got wrong? The biggest thing that the TV people got wrong is not knowing the history. They were treating it just like any other asylum. They did not focus on the compassionate part they did not compo- they did not focus on the fact that Dr. Zeller only hired people that he knew would treat his patients with compassion and um Tennessee race Tennessee wraith chasers uh, they really get my blood pressure up sure that's okay their ghost hunters did not do the very best research on their history before they came. I did my best to tell them about the history, but to be fair, I was talking to them on Friday after their investigation. So I I did a little bit of damage control, but uh, to be fair, they did their investigation there before they interviewed me. Now, was that a tactic or was that just a matter of scheduling? Oh, I have no idea. I'm sure it was scheduling. Because sometimes you think about a tactic of that. If they, let's say you go into a place and you just do the investigation where you're saying like, okay, these are the names we picked up. These are (laughs) the, um, the places we saw things where you don't have that stuff in your head in the first place. That's coming into, uh, if you're just purely investigating and then you're trying to link it up afterwards to, okay, uh, we got the name, you know, Bob Jones. And I guess Bob Jones was a patient here or Bob Jones was the head orderly. If, if they even called orderlies anymore, or if they ever were called orderlies and not just the movie starring the fat boys in like 1986. Um, <laughs> So I was thinking that might be some kind of investigative tactic, but on the other end, it also might just be a like we can get her on Friday, bring her out on Friday. I really honestly don't know, but that's a very good point. Yeah, I I, I was I was interviewed for the Wraith, the Tennessee Wraith Chasers, the Ghost Asylum. Ghost uh, Asylum. Yeah. Extreme and- ghost hunting. <laughs> I was interviewed for that by phone even before they were out there and we set up a date for me to to be on camera and then they decided they didn't need me and it was just local politics and that doesn't even deserve to be gone into. But their shtick is that they tr- they make kind of a ghost trap to attract whatever spirit they're seeking and the thing that they made for this particular goat, they were in search of the spirit of Rhoda Derry, who spent over 44 years locked in a Utica crib at the Adams County Almshouse. And she was eventually rescued by Dr. Zeller and, so and brought what, to the Peoria State Hospital. And what is a Utica crib? The Utica crib was developed at an asylum in Utica, New York, which is how it got its name. It's basically a baby's crib that pretty much sits on the floor, but the it also has a lid, a barred lid, which locks. And patients, some patients would request to be put into the Utica crib because it made them feel safe. There was one fellow that 
he told a reporter, I sleepwalk. And if a, lo- a nurse puts me into a Utica crib at night and locks me in, I know where I'm going to wake up the next morning. And that's comforting to me. But they were never designed for use longer than overnight. And Rhoda was kept in hers for weeks and months on end. And it destroyed her life. It, Her hips atrophied. She could no longer stand. And sometimes, sometime during the first 10 years of this treatment, she decided she no longer wanted to watch the world go by through the bars of a cage, and she clawed her own eyes out. And the story about Rhoda Derry is horrifying. Here's, here's someone who spent decades of her life inside the Utica crib, like inside basically an Iron Maiden you can see through. She, I mean, yes. and so eventually she doesn't want to see it. She claws her own eyes out. But what led her? Like, I think that. Um, I mean, you went and you wrote a whole book about Rhoda Derry. I did. Yes. And so, like, how did she get there in the first place? Like, was she born like that, right? Or did something happen to her um, that? that kind of triggered this kind of mental illness. Rhoda Derry was the youngest of nine children. She was born in 1834. She was a beautiful, beautiful young girl. And she ended up in this mental asylum, locked away from the cage, forgotten by her family, her life destroyed because she fell in love. That's a warning to you, everybody. When she was 16 years old, she did the most natural thing in the world. She fell in love with the 16-year-old son of a neighboring farm family, Charles Phoenix. Now, the dairies were extremely poor, and the Phoenixes were rather well off. And Nancy Phoenix, Charles's mother, was not about to let her baby boy Charles marry one of these dirt-poor dairies. So she confronted Rhoda and threatened to curse her. She said, if you do not release my son from this engagement, I will curse you. And Rhoda took her seriously, and it drove her mad. Now, that, like, just that in itself is, um, you know, you never hear about curses actually working like, that's, that's an evil eye. And this, this is what really got me about the story, because Rhoda Derry's story, um, I mean, what year was she born in again? 1834. Okay, so 1834. So this is right before Illinois' state. This is only a couple years after the Treaty of Chicago, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of, that kind of opened up Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota to settling. Um, yeah. So you get families coming right out, you know, uh, basically just getting like for the first time settling in a new place you have a young girl falls in love the evil mother-in-law curses <laughs> her drives her mad and then um you know she's stuck in a cage like she goes so crazy that her family has no choice but to put her basically in a cage this Utica crib and how long does she spend in there 44 years 44 years in she- there Yes, she was she was put into the Adams County Asylum in 1860 when her mother passed away. Her father could no longer care for her, so she, he brought her and dropped her off at the Adams County Almshouse. So she was there from sometime in 1860 to um, September of 1904, which was in when I was older. Now, what's an op, what's an almshouse like? You know, we don't just I can't just go to the almshouse today, can I? Like, what is it? not today? No. <laughs> Now, almshouses or poor houses, every county in Illinois had one. And it was simply a place where if you were down on your luck, you could go and get three hots and a cot. They were not designed to care for the mentally ill, only the poor. But mentally ill folks are poor, too. So that's sometimes that's where they end up. And this almshouse was absolutely unprepared to care for someone with Rhoda's depth of crazy. So um, the the interesting thing about Dr. Zeller is that he believed, one of his bedrock beliefs was that no one is incurable. He prided himself on caring for what he called the worst of the worst. Now, you might assume that means violent, but not, not necessarily. He prided himself on taking care of the patients that every other institution had given up on, the people that were locked away and forgotten. And he really firmly believed that no one was beyond help. So how do you prove that? How do you prove that no patient is beyond redemption? Well, you go around to the almshouses and the poor houses of the state, and you cherry pick the worst cases, the most neglected, abused cases. And that's what he did. He went to the Adams County almshouse, and he found Rhoda there, and he rescued her. He brought her to the Peoria State Hospital. 
And so she got this, I mean, so 44 years. So if she's 16, when she, uh, you know, all of a sudden, it, this triggers a mental illness. Like, okay, let's say it wasn't a curse. <laughs> let's just say she had a predisposition. <laughs> like, the, the curse story is pretty good. Um, but, you know, even if the curse could have been like you believe in it kind of thing, uh, almost like right. voodoo sometimes seems like it, it, the curses happen to the people that believe in them. And so she yeah. believes in it. It triggers like some kind of, you know, mental illness where she can't get out of bed or acts crazy, eventually claws her eyes out. When she gets to the Peoria State Hospital, what in her life changes? Well, for the first time in 44 years, she sleeps in a bed with clean white sheets. She is cared for by compassionate nurses who knew her excruciating history. She could no longer see, of course, but those nurses made sure that she experienced the hilltop in any way that was left to her. They let her sit out in the gardens and feel the sun on her face and listen to the birds and smell the flowers whose colors she could no longer see. The nurses took her to dances where she could listen to the music. Uh, an interesting thing about Rhoda's spirit is that <laughs> I, I talked to the historian of the Peoria State Hospital. and That's Christine Morris? Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. And um, she, she experienced Rhoda's spirit very early on in her exploration. She was in her late teens when she started exploring the hilltop. And... Um, the first time she saw Rhoda Derry's spirit, which she later recognized as Rhoda Derry's spirit, she thought she was Glinda the Good Witch because Rhoda appeared to her in a bubble. Now, Rhoda can't see. All she experiences is the sensation of rolling because she's in a, a wheeled chair being rolled about. So that is her conception of her first moments and her first months at the Peoria State Hospital is rolling. So that's how she presents herself as a spirit, is this sphere. In a bubble. Yeah, kind of like a big hamster cage. And not to be flippant. Well, no, but, I mean, yeah, like a big was... hamster wheel, like rolling across. Like they got that for kids now, too. Like they got hamster wheels they can play in and roll them on a water at like <laughs> fairs and things. Um <laughs> But it, no, it's that idea. If if, that, if that's how she's experiencing the world, that's a really interesting part of you know the apparition. Yeah, I've never heard of her presenting before. <laughs> and, and that Christine, uh, obviously, um, you know, she used to lead. Does she still lead tours around? Because she led tours around the hospital for a long time, right? She certainly does. She still does. Yeah. And and so it's cool when the tour guide has a ghost experience. I, you know, I can tell you that straight out. Cause it's like, sometimes the history people don't like to play with the haunted history part of it. Um, so it's, it's exciting when they do. Yeah. So, but that's not only the only, like if we talk about that, um, you know, Rhoda, her spirit or her recording or haunting or, or whatever it is that appears to people inside the Peoria state hospital grounds appears as a hamster wheel Oh, in, you know, inside this bubble. But also, wasn't there something about her arms, like, that people saw, like, her arms were extra long? Why Why would they see an apparition like that? Well, the reason for that is because Rhoda was a very tall, beautiful girl in life before this tragedy happened to her. Um, so she, I mean, she didn't lose that arm length when her hips atrophied is, was just that she could no longer stand up, but she used her arms for locomotion. I mean, she would, if you, if she was placed on the floor, she had no choice, but to ball up her fists, use her feet as a, or her hands as auxiliary feet. Almost like gorilla walking. I mean, I feel really bad for her, but she was able to get around sure. on, under her own power. And that was probably really important to her. But the thing is, she was very tall. She didn't lose that those beautiful long arms. But whenever she presents as a spirit, well, so, okay, let me let me rephrase that. Some of the times when she presents as a spirit, she presents sitting down, but reaching out to whoever it is that is looking at her with these long, graceful arms, but she's sitting. <laughs> so you don't notice the fact that she has long, pretty legs, too. You only see these long, scary arms. <laughs> well, so it is a bit disconcerting. <laughs> but also, though, if she couldn't see, 
then, I mean, that's the way when you, you know, when a blind person looks at your face or whatever, they, you know, use the hands as a sense to see the face. So it almost makes sense to me that when uh, the apparition, uh, who you don't think they'd be limited by the same senses that they were in life, but you also don't think they'd be hanging around the hospital or whatever, like if you can fly (laughs) anywhere, um, you know, that they would use that same kind of uh, sensory experience that they had in life uh, to try to touch the person um, you know that they see in the room. But so def- several people have seen Rhoda's apparition. Have you ever seen her? I have not. I dearly wish I could. <laughs> sure. um, I have I have recorded an EVP which we think we might be able to ascribe to Rhoda. But I have never. What what the EVP say? Well, um, this was captured in conjunction with. Uh, I I was down in the basement of the Pollock Hospital with a psychic medium who can see spirits and talk with them. Was the Pollock Hospital the mental institution, or was it the tuberculosis hospital? I can't remember. That was the tuberculosis ward. Okay. And it was built. The Pollock Hospital itself was built in 1950, and it was built on the site of a previous tuberculosis hospital, which was in a bat wing shape. And that hospital was built on top of the land where the original tent colony for the care of tuberculosis victims was situated. So there were three different edifices for the care of tuberculosis patients on this particular plot of ground, which makes that just soaked in death and and suffering because tuberculosis is very painful. Now, when people talk about uh, old styles of medicine and st- or old styles of diseases, when they're talking about consumption, that means tuberculosis, right? Equals tuberculosis, yeah. It's basically where you you drown in your own blood. It causes lesions on the lungs, and when you cough, those lesions rupture, and you cough up blood. You basically drown in your own body. It's it's a horrible, horrible w- way to go. Okay, thanks. So, um, <laughs> um, we were my my psychic medium friend and I were having a conversation with Christopher, who is one of the spirits in the basement of the Pollock Hospital. That's the boy in the basement. You have a whole chapter about him in the new book, right? Boy in the basement, yes. And I have two lights out programs about him too. Um, you can hear our conversations. We'll have a link to that at OthersidePodcast.com dot com slash two seventy three, uh, where you can. Um, if you look in the show notes, we'll have links to uh, Fractured Souls, Sylvia's new book, as well as her podcast, Lights Out. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> um, so, yes. Uh, so we were having a conversation with Chris, and Diane said he, he was very young when he died. He, she said he was, he was young, about 22. And we captured an EVP right afterwards that said, I, I thought at first listen, it's, it was Chris saying, that's right, 22. But as I listened to it further and I had other people listen to it, they discovered that it was not a male voice. It was not the voice we associated with Chris. It was a female voice saying he was 22. And he has spoken of Rhoda being in the basement with him, just hanging out, I guess. So we think that might be Rhoda say, popping, piping in saying he was 22. Um, and since you mentioned, fra- mentioned fractured souls and we're talking about EVPs, if you get either the print version or the ebook version of fractured souls or fractured spirits and you see a little cartoon ghosty in the margin, that's your signal that there's extra stuff on the internet. If you go to sylviashultz.com wordpress.com and click on multimedia links for books, you can listen to those EVPs or watch those videos as you're reading the book. And I w- we'll get to one of those, um, w- one of the links that you had uh, in, in just a second. I wanted to uh, talk and ask you about um, one of the things that people saw at the asylum. But so we have this Rhoda Derry. Um, yes. She comes in the last few years of her life are much better than those that preceded. Even though she's still not well, she at least is in a place where people aren't abusing her. She's not stuck in, in the Utica crib. And so why did, when the Tennessee Wraith Chasers set up their ghost trap, why was it so offensive? Oh my gosh. Offensive is the right word for it. Uh, the reason it was so offensive was because the trap they built was a Utica crib. 
And for someone to expect that Rhoda Derry's spirit would come within a hundred feet of that thing, even after so many decades of being dead, is just foolish and offensive and just really appalling. And th- this was this represented over four decades of hell for her. And I don't see why they made the choice to make that their trigger object and make that their 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 object to draw Rhoda's spirit in. It it ba- it baffles me why they made that decision. Well, I mean, it probably because it looked terrifying on television. Like I could tell you why they made the decision <laughs> because uh, whoever was there was like, "This is gonna look this is gonna look great on TV." Yeah, this is gonna look so badass. Yeah. Well, good luck trying to get Rhoda's spirit to get anywhere near. <laughs> And so there's a couple of stories from your book that I wanted to make sure we talked about. And number one is, so you mentioned that you can hear some, uh, hear and see some multimedia on your site uh, of the EVPs and videos that people have experienced in the Peoria State Hospital. One is, I mean, Dale Kaczmarek, uh, the Chicago ghost hunter, uh, and he's, I mean, Dale Kaczmarek's been around for, well, to me, it feels like a thousand years. Uh, at least <laughs> I've been reading his stuff ever since I was interested in ghosts on the internet and stuff like that. I've been on his sites and watch and listening to his EVPs and everything. And so Dale, he writes to uh, forward to your book and he mentions yes. that he, you know, that they catch this video uh, while Chris Morris is doing a, a lecture um, while she's, you know, kind of guiding them on a tour and somebody's got an old school video camera and they're taping that. And then all of a sudden, like something appears behind her. <laughs> Yes. Oh, and we call it the thingy. And that yeah. gives me the giggles every time I watch that video. It is so hilarious because Christina is doing her lecture at the beginning of the ghost hunt in the Pollock Hospital. And what she is talking about at that particular moment was I mentioned that uh, most of the people who passed away there were sent home on the train system to their families for burial and family plots. And at that point in time, Christina was speaking about bodies being wrapped tightly in sheets and put into the basement of the Pollock Hospital, which is actually built over a natural spring so it stays nice and cool. And they did that on purpose so that they could keep the bodies cool before they were sent home on the train system. And as she's talking about wrapping bodies tightly in sheets, all of a sudden, this white thing, it looks for all the world like a sock puppet. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks like somebody has a sheet over their hand, over their arm, and it pops up behind Chris and it hangs there in the air for a while and wavers back and forth ever so slightly. And then it kind of it moves like a Muppet. It kind of skitters away behind her, and everyone is looking at it, going, wait, what? What what was that? <laughs> and she finished what she was saying because she's a professional speaker. And then she turns to look, and by that time it had it had skittered away. And uh, people were trying to tell her what they had seen. And she said, "Oh boy, wouldn't it be great if, if we caught it on camera?" And they did. And you can see it. You can go to YouTube and you can watch it. And it's it's just delightful. <laughs> we'll embed the thingy video in the show notes, but. When it looks okay, so you're watching it, and it doesn't appear like ethereally or whatever. It doesn't fade in and fade out. It like pops up from behind this screen, not really a screen or whatever she's standing in front of. It it's po- like a pile of lumber. Yeah. yeah, it pops up from behind it, and you can see yeah. it like you know it's it, and it almost looks like one of those inflatable guys that you see at a um, like a car dealership, like the yeah. crazy inflatable arm waving things and it kind of looks like it's blown up like that you know and it just sits there and it kind of quivers a little bit like those crazy inflatable hand guys and then it just goes back down like the inflation like it's being deflated you know it kind of that's that's what it looked like to me and so i'm looking at this and i'm thinking like well what can it be like a a balloon or something and then the air conditioning or the heat kicked in and you know had it up but you think that'd be something you'd see all the time if you were there um, uh-huh. and I just, I was wanting, you know, I got to ask Dale, I got to be like, did you like go back there and see if you could find the sock or the balloon or it, it really is. The video is really interesting. You know, I don't know if it's a ghost, but it's pretty weird. 
They actually did afterwards go back and, well, right after it happened, um, Christina encouraged them to go back, as a matter of fact. I don't think it's it's on the tape at all, but everybody went back to where Christina had been standing, and it was basically a solid pile of lumber. Right. There's no balloon or sock or condom or whatever that thing was. Right. Oh, no, there wasn't anything like that. It was just wood back there. It was crazy. <laughs> and so... That's it's it's great video footage of, of at least some strange anomalies that people have seen in the hospital. But then I like the fact that you're, um, you know, one time you had a presentation of Dale's and you're listening to his EVPs and mm-hmm. you had a chance to almost turn the narrative, uh, you know, turn his narrative of who he thought the spirit was around. And I kind of wanted to get in that story, too, because I think that story is emblematic of your research and experiences in the hospital as well. Can you can you tell us that one? I know exactly what you're referring to. So I was at a conference with Dale and he was giving a presentation on the Peoria State Hospital. This is the at the point in time when the Bowen building was still standing. And the Bowen was the nurses dormitory and classrooms for a very long time. Then in the mid-1960s, there was a big remodel and they turned it into the administration building. And all those big, beautiful day rooms and classrooms for the nurses got kind of chopped down into offices and whatnot. But for most of the hospital's history, it was dormitories for the nurses and classrooms for the nurses and uh, doctor's apartments and whatnot. So Dale and his group, Ghost Research Society, were down in the basement of the Bowen and they were recording and they were told that they were in the morgue which is there there's more to the basement than just the morgue and the morgue was not in the basement of the Bowen anyway um and they caught an EVP of a girlish giggle and he said during his presentation I have no idea why we caught a giggle on our recorders when we were down in the basement in this place we were told was the morgue and i i'm not that kind of person i don't i didn't interrupt his his presentation but i came up to people afterwards and i said i have a theory as to who and what it was that you heard and he said please tell me we have spoken to nurses that used to live there and study there and they have told us about the fact that down in the basement was the storeroom for some of their food. And they would tell us about sneaking down from their rooms after lights out and nicking a can of peaches from the pantry and taking it up to their room to snack on, have a little midnight snack. So I told Dale, what you heard was the little giggle of a young nurse getting away with something. And he said, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> right, than like a giggling dead body in the morgue. Right, right. And and when you know the history, when you know the circumstances of the EVP that you catch, it does make a lot more sense. That really, to me, um, taking something where it's very traditionally like, so we were in the morgue and I was asking <laughs> questions about how did you die? Um, and then turning it around and being like, no, I mean, whether it was a recording of something in the walls or an energy or a spirit, you know, what you, you heard girls having fun and, you know, people, nurses who were living, uh, well, the difficult life that a nurse lives when you have to take care of people and having a spot of brightness in their life. And the idea that every time like you have a ghost thing, there's some tortured creature uh, that is, you know, calling out from beyond um, in pain and regret and all these kind of things. And it's just easy to get lost in that narrative. So when you can turn it around and turn it into something fun and positive, I don't know, it's just a lot nicer. I mean, of course, I like it that it's not li- nicer, but I just feel that uh, it creates a different kind of, you know, a more playful atmosphere of the paranormal than the scary atmosphere of the paranormal that, you know, we're fed constantly by, you know, movies and TV because it obviously works. It's a lot more satisfying too. Right. Because life is not just eternal misery all the time. And so you would hope that afterlife would not be eternal misery all the time. Um, There's one more guy I kind of wanted to get to, uh, a uh, Manuel Bookbinder. (laughs) 
he is. Yes. And um, he's a really, I thought it was a really interesting character, and it really ties in also uh, to the kind of character that Dr. Zeller was as well. So I, I think just a little bit on A. Manuel Bookbinder, uh, I really enjoyed his story from the book. Of course. So um, it, in the very early days of the asylum, we would take people from all over the place, no matter what their their issue happened to be. Um, and this fellow was brought to us by his, um, I don't remember if he was just dropped off or coworkers had brought him here, but, um, this fellow was dropped off and his, he had a mental breakdown at work and his breakdown was so total and so complete that he was rendered mute. He was unable to tell the intake nurses his name. So the only information they had was that he had worked in a book bindery. So they wrote his name down in the intake booklet as a manual bookbinder. So he became known as bookbinder or old book for oh, short. Oh, so I was using Manuel. Like it look at <laughs> <laughs> it is Manuel, Manuel right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so one of Dr. Zeller's genius ideas was that he gave every able-bodied patient a job to do. Nothing strenuous or anything, nothing backbreaking, just something to fill the hours of the day, to give them a reason to get up in the morning, give them a sense of purpose to their days. And Book was put on cemetery duty. His duty was to keep the cemeteries nice and tidy and to pick up any fallen branches and to also dig the graves. So he started doing this and he attended the first funeral for the first grave that he dug. And as he stood there, he started sniffling and his shoulders started to hitch and a tear tracked down his cheek. And pretty soon old book was just sobbing openly. So not to disturb anyone, he wandered over to a big elm tree that was in the middle of the cemetery and he leaned against it and just poured his heart out to this tree, just sobbed and sobbed. When the funeral was over, he collected himself and wiped his face and came back and filled in the grave. He did this for every funeral he attended, and he attended every funeral on the hilltop. He got to be sort of an urban legend on the hilltop. Uh, when a person, when a patient realized they were near death, they would grab a passing nurse and say, make sure old book cries for me or I won't get into heaven. So he was quite the character on the hilltop. He had been with us for uh, just a few years when he himself passed away. And Old Book was a very well-liked character on the hilltop, so his funeral was very well attended. So they, they sang a couple of hymns, and Dr. Zeller gave the eulogy because he was there at the funeral. And they went to put the coffin into the ground, and there was ropes slung under the coffin, and the coffin was sitting on a couple of boards above the empty grave. So four guys on each end of these two ropes, and they heaved on the coffin to lift it up so they could slide the boards away to lower the coffin. And as they did so, as they heaved on these ropes, the coffin bounced up in the air as though it were completely empty. And at that very same moment, everyone heard a wailing and howling coming from the, the cemetery elm at the middle of the cemetery, and there was the ghost of old book. He was standing by this graveyard elm, leaning against it, just howling and carrying on as though his heart was breaking. People didn't know what to do. There were nurses there that fell to their knees. Dr. Zeller, he said, I want that coffin open right now. And he sent somebody for a crowbar, and they, they jimmied up the uh, coffin lid and opened the lid. And as soon as they opened the lid, the wailing stopped. And the voice, the, the, the ghost disappeared, and there in the coffin was old book, absolutely undeniably dead. And we know about this because Dr. Zeller wrote about it in his memoirs. He said, it was awful, but it was real. I saw it. 100 nurses and 300 spectators saw it. Now, the story of old book doesn't end there. The, uh, after about six weeks or so, the tree started to die. And this was old book's tree. Nobody wanted to see it go. So Dr. Zeller had people watering it, had patients taking care of it. But no matter what they did, the tree was definitely dying. It was, about, it was dropping leaves. And Dr. Zeller was a very safety-conscious guy, so he didn't want the tree coming down and hitting anyone. So he sent out a, a crew to chop the tree down. And at the first stroke of the axe, 
they swore they could hear the voice of old book coming from the trees. They threw the axe down and they said, oh, we don't want any part of this. So the tree was allowed to die on its own. And legend has it that when it fell, it fell right between the rows of tombstones and didn't damage a single stone as it fell. That's a great legend of the Peoria State Hospital. (laughs) Right. Um, And people always ask, is it is it true? It's a marvelous ghost story. It's 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 not true. (laughs) Dr. Zeller was a very fine fiction writer. He was known as the Rudyard Kipling of America. And the Rudyard Kipling of England actually wrote to him and complimented him on his short stories. And superintendents of other asylums got to hearing this story of old book. And they would write to Dr. Zeller and they'd say, hey, we've been hearing this weird ghost tale coming out of Peoria. What's the deal with that? So he actually wrote a blanket letter to a lot of journals to which was a a contributor, including, interestingly enough, the Journal for Psychical Research. And he admitted it. He said, he fessed up. He said, we've got a lot of wonderful characters at our asylum. Um, Some of them make it into our fiction, (laughs) my fiction. And he said, old book was such a wonderful character. And he cried at everyone's funeral. And I just thought it was really too bad that no one would cry for him so that he made that happen he made old book cry at his own funeral now there's a very interesting postscript to this okay when ghost hunters visited the asylum um they spent most of their time at the bowen building of course but then a couple of fellows went out to cemetery too which is where old book was buried and this again made my teeth itch because they were wandering around they found a big tree in the middle of the cemetery oh this must be old book's tree no 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 that's part of the legend the part of the legend of the tree dies remember that part but <laughs> i'll let that slide <laughs> i talked to the, i told them the story on friday they investigated thursday night so we'll let it slide but they did do a very interesting capture of a shadow figure they were they had their camera pointed towards old book's grave but it also looked beyond the grave over the cemetery to the tree line where it drops into the ravine and they captured a shadow figure coming out from behind a tree in the middle of the screen walking towards the right and then disappearing before it got to the right edge of the screen very interesting capture and probably the best piece of evidence they got from their entire visit right but we've just decided We've just found out that Dr. Zeller made old ghost book up, old old books ghost up. He he was a, a patient there. He cried at every funeral. He was buried there. He was a perfectly wonderful patient, but his ghost story is completely made up. So if it's not old book, who is it? Right. Well, maybe the ghost hunters called him forth. You know, maybe he did. You know, he's still. Um, they're like he's like. Well, I'll come to visit. He's like. There's some cameras. <laughs> You know, and obviously he's kind of a ham because he cried. He's a mute that cries at everybody's funeral. (laughs) He was very theatrical, yes. But we did have another patient in August of 1910. There was a patient there named Charles Jones, an elderly man. He was in his early 70s. He came from Hannah City, and he 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 had himself committed to the Peoria State Hospital. He was suffering from depression. And he was he was well liked. He made himself pleasant to the nurses. He would have conversations with other patients. And I mentioned before that the patients had the full run of the hilltop. They could go wherever they wanted to. Well, before the asylum was set up on the hilltop, it was the site of a mining community. And the miners had left a lot of their equipment behind, including their dynamite and their blasting caps. So Mr. Jones was wandering around and he happened upon one of these blasting caps and he put it in his pocket. And a few weeks after he came to the asylum, he decided that the demon of his depression was too much for him to go on fighting. And he went into one of the ravines and he put that blasting cap into his mouth and either bit down real hard or punched himself in the jaw to close his mouth really oh, hard. Oh, man, and either way, that's gnarly. They never found any bit of his head. It decapitated him just as neatly as a guillotine would have done. Oof. Yeah. So since he did the deed in one of the ravines, it's entirely possible that 
that the ghost hunter's camera did not capture old book, but instead captured Mr. Dynamite. You know, and Mr. Dynamite would have been a great story on TV, too, if they'd have known that. Um, <laughs> you know, like they could have known that story. Like, oh, what, what interesting things have happened in the ravine or in, in the cemetery? And then you could have told them that and they'd be like, oh, my God, like them screaming Mr. Dynamite would have been totally sweet. Um you know, there's some really good stories and, you know, you have so many of them in Fractured Souls, but there's a couple of different things. Uh, last questions I had for you. One was the haunted infirmary. Um, that's a haunted house that you guys put on every year? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every October, the Pollock is turned into the haunted infirmary. Um, the lore behind the haunted house is that Uh, There has been a portal to another dimension opened up, and this is what has spewed forth. But we are very, very, very careful to keep the history of the asylum and the haunted infirmary completely separate. One has absolutely nothing to do with with the other. They're in the same building, and that is as it goes. Um. We get a lot of flack for putting on a haunted house in a haunted building that happens to be in a haunted asylum. But we say, you know, they're they're absolutely separate. And we also point out that during the asylum's history, they had parties. They celebrated Halloween. They celebrated Christmas. They celebrated holidays. All of these cottages where the patients lived were decorated for every holiday and for every patient's birthday. These people loved a party. (laughs) They had movies every Friday night. They had dances every Saturday night. They would have been absolutely thrilled to be celebrating Halloween with us. And some of them do celebrate Halloween in our haunted house. (laughs) So there's no, there's nobody playing like Rhoda Derry, like, Playing Rhoda playing Rhoda Derry in the Utica crib at the haunted infirmary isn't like Peoria's version of the May Queen or anything like that. Never, ever, All and right. no. <laughs> All right, just an idea for next year. Um, no, no. <laughs> no, okay, but okay. Now, when you t- the haunted infirmary sounds like a lot of fun and a really interesting, and you know. Uh, where I grew up in McQuanago, Wisconsin, um, there was a place called Rainbow Springs. And that was, um, I've talked about that place a couple of times because it had a whole bunch of haunted stories. But the developer of the hotel and resort ran out of money and killed himself inside the hotel. And that's in the newspaper and stuff. It's not just one of those urban legends. And, you know, people had seen ghosts and weird things in, you know, because it's, it's a half-built hotel. Mm. And they just never finished. And it was there for, oh, 30s maybe 40 years before eventually part of it burned down and then they got rid of the rest of it but the McQuanago jc's they would hold the haunted house there every year in the uh you know because if this they did open a golf course uh on the site but the hotel never opened and so the people that ran the golf course were like sure we got this hotel um that's mostly built uh you might as well do something with it and they had a, a really great haunted house there and that, that idea of like, you got a building, nobody's using it, might as well do something cool with it. And if it's got haunted stories already, um, you know, give it, uh, you know, make it, a, make it a haunted house. And they did that. So I understand the haunted infirmary sounds like a lot of fun. But in the book, you mentioned that, well, during the haunted infirmary, uh, the men's ward wing uh, is all, you know, we're not never supposed to open the door because it's rented out. Right. Who's renting out the men's ward wing of the haunted hospital? Like, is there some kind of satanic cabal in Peoria, Illinois, that's renting out this men's ward wing? Oh, no. Okay, so so the Pollock Hospital is built kind of in an H shape. There's a long corridor uh, with little rooms off to each side for blood draws and physical exams and oxygen therapy and whatnot. And then the two ends are the women's ward and the men's ward. And those are further um, divided as the H part. Each wing is divided into the recovery ward and the death ward. Now, uh, on the women's side, the JFL, uh, Limestone High School JFL, owns the building and they keep stuff there. They store uh, football equipment in part of that building, part of the women's ward. Wait, what's a JFL? Uh, Junior Football League. Okay, Junior Football League. All right. Um, And then the men's ward is divided into the death ward and the recovery ward. And the death ward is on our side. And that locked door that mysteriously came open during the haunt one year uh, leads to it is 
the the recovery ward is rented by um, I want to say this one of the Catholic dioceses in Peoria, and they just store stuff there like pews and I religious see. artifacts. So it's, a, right, it's a place yeah. used for storage. Like they're storing stuff in the. Like I was like, what are people working in? There? Like what are they doing in that place? Like oh no, we can't go in there because it's rented out to who. So, okay. Okay. So it's just rented out for storage. It's being used. I get it yeah. now. Yeah. But, uh, no, that was one of my burning questions. I'm like, what kind of weirdo? And then you're like, oh, Catholics. I'm like, I get it. I grew up Catholic. Uh, all right. So, you know, Sylvia, I got to thank you for joining us very much. Um, if people want to find out more information about you, they want to check out your books, um, and they don't have time to go to other side podcast.com slash 273 to read my thoroughly well-written show notes um you know where can they go find you on the interwebs you can find me at sylviaschultz.wordpress.com that's s-h-u-l-t-s um there's a load of wonderful stuff there there's uh the page that leads to my lights out podcast there is the page for the multimedia links for both books fractured spirits and fractured souls and I do a, uh, a blog there, too, that you can follow and all sorts of wonderful stuff. You can also find me on Facebook at uh, Ghosts of the Illinois River or Fractured Spirits. So I highly recommend Fractured Souls if you guys are interested in uh, learning more about the compassionate side of mental health care in the late 19th and early 20th century, which is something you almost never hear about. And also to hear about some really interesting ghost stories uh, from Peoria. It's a lot more than just John. Probably the most shocking and cruel image for me in the whole conversation was Sylvia discussing the Utica crib. With a hospital bed in the crib, the patients only had 12 inches of vertical space to live in. It was a bed where you could never get up and you were never let up. They justified the practice because they said that they restrained patients who might be suicidal or cause self-harm, like Rhodotheria did by ripping out her eyes with her own bare hands. But the thing is, did they ever think that maybe they wanted to hurt themselves because they were in the crib in the first place? At the time, they thought it was more comfortable than a straitjacket. But it shows how far we've come in the treatment of mental illness that we're horrified by such a device. But it also shows that even our better natures need to be checked sometimes. The proverbial road to hell is paved with good intentions. Because what starts as compassion can turn into cruelty. This song is called The Utica Crib.
thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. The Thanksgiving season is upon us. And before the holiday hits, we have a very important event that I hope you can make it to. And that is the See You on the Other Side Patreon Hangout. And that's going to be this upcoming week, right before Thanksgiving, either Monday or Tuesday. So if you're a Patreon member, please make sure you check in and vote on the preferred day that will work for you. But we are looking forward to chatting with everybody. And we want to thank you all for being such great supporters of our show and everything we do here at See You on the Other Side and in the Sunspot Camp. A huge shout out goes to our Patreon supporter, Ned. Dr. Ned is pledging us at a level that he gets this shout out every single episode. And we sure do appreciate you, Ned. So thank you for that. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, please check out othersidepodcast.com slash donate and you can join our community and be part of the hangout all the way up until the day of the hangout. So we'd love to meet you and talk to you about your favorite paranormal topics. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll catch you next week. Ghost Asylum! Extreme Ghost Hunting! These people love to party.